I should like to call your attention this morning to two verses in the sixth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. The epistle to the Romans, chapter 6, verses 5 and 8. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Those two verses come, as you must remember, in this mighty argument which the Apostle develops in this sixth chapter of this epistle of his to the church at Rome. We were looking at it last Sunday morning and we continue our consideration of it this morning from another aspect. We've been dealing for a number of Sunday mornings with the problem and the question of what we may describe as spiritual depression. We have been analyzing and considering the various causes as to why many Christian people, instead of rejoicing in their salvation, are often discouraged and disappointed and even unhappy and sometimes even miserable. The reason for considering that, of course, is quite obvious, that not only are they themselves missing so much of what God has for his people, but they are very poor representatives of the Christian faith, and are of a type, therefore, that is likely to discourage those who are outside from seeking their salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are looking at it from, for those two reasons. We have no right to be miserable Christians. And especially when we consider it in terms of the fact that those who are out in the world so often judge God and the Lord Jesus Christ by what they see in us because we take the name of Christ upon us. Now there are many causes to this condition. But there is no doubt at all, and I think we've been seeing this more and more, that perhaps the chief cause is a failure to understand the message of the scriptures. Sometimes that failure is due to uh, a failure to read the scriptures diligently as we ought, or a failure perhaps to read them systematically. Or it may be due to another reason, namely that though we do read the scriptures, we somehow or another do not take sufficient trouble with them, and we fail to understand them. There are, there are many Christian people who are in this depressed, discouraged condition for precisely the same reason that those two men who were on the road to Emmaus on that morning were likewise depressed and discouraged. What our Lord said to them was, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have to say. Now it's exactly the same with so many Christian people today. I say that this is undoubtedly the most prolific cause of all of this depressed, discouraged condition. It is a failure to grasp and to take a firm hold of the teaching of the scripture. And if that is true speaking generally, I feel it is particularly true with regard to the teaching of this sixth chapter of this epistle to the Romans. There are certain chapters in the Bible, it seems to me, which are sadly neglected because of our preoccupation with other chapters which are closely related to them. 
And I always have a feeling that this sixth chapter of Romans is sadly and pathetically neglected because people are so anxious to rush on to the eighth chapter. And thereby they rob themselves of some of the richest teaching that is to be found anywhere in the scripture. Now there is one thing that stands out very clearly in this chapter. It's got one great principle which we neglect only at our greatest peril. And that is the way in which it emphasizes the relationship between the historical facts on which our faith is based and the doctrine which is based upon those facts or is deduced from the facts. Now that is something I say which is of the greatest possible importance. And uh, we must always be very careful to maintain both those aspects of our Christian position, invariably always together. That is the thing that marks off the Christian faith from every other faith and teaching, that it starts with historical facts, and then and then only goes on to its teaching, uh, to its doctrines, to its deductions. Now this chapter, I say, emphasizes both those things. It's a great doctrinal chapter, yes, but you notice that the entire doctrine is based upon certain things that have happened literally to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we must never cease to start with the great historic facts and events concerning him. Christianity doesn't start by offering us uh, an experience. It starts by telling us about Jesus Christ. And if we start with the experimental or the experiential before starting with the facts, well, we shall invariably and certainly go astray, as so many have done and are still doing. We start, I say, with a great proclamation of the facts, and the facts are the person, Jesus of Nazareth, and the truth concerning him, his birth. It's a fact. It isn't a fairy tale. He was born in Bethlehem in a stable. They put his body in the manger. We must always go on saying that and repeating that. It belongs to history. And then we go on with his life and his teaching. And then we go on and emphasize his death. Yes, the literal historic thing that took place on Calvary's hill. Not an idea, but a fact. Something that literally happened there. And it behoves us to stay with the facts and remember that we are dealing with solid history. And then, of course, we come on to this great fact which we think of today, namely his resurrection. Now, all these, I say, are hard, literal facts. They are things that have taken place. There is no doubt, there is no question about that at all. And what we are reminding ourselves of today is this fact that the Lord Jesus Christ who was nailed to a tree and who was uh, there seen and watched by men and women as he expired and died, whose body was taken down and buried and placed in a grave and they rolled a stone onto the opening of the grave and sealed it, you remember, and took every precaution they could. The fact is that our Lord literally arose in the body out of that grave. That's the fact of the resurrection. 
It isn't only to say that Jesus still lives. It is to say that Jesus in the body came out of that grave in his literal body. He came out of the grave. He rose up out of it, leaving the grave clothes behind. That's the fact. And that is the thing I say which we must always start with and which we must always emphasize. The resurrection isn't an idea. It isn't a sort of spiritual springtime. It isn't something that reminds us that the flowers are beginning to bud again and the lambs beginning to gamble in the fields. Not at all. This is a literal effect. As certainly as Julius Caesar conquered this country in 55 BC, the Lord Jesus Christ came out of the grave in the body on that resurrection morn. Now that, I say, is the starting point. And I am emphasizing it for this reason. That if all that is not true, well then everything the Apostle argues in this sixth chapter is wrong and is a waste of time. If all these things are not true, there is no such thing as Christian doctrine, there is no such thing as the Christian faith. And we have no message whatsoever. If Christ be not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We are yet in our sins. You may wonder, my friends, why I'm emphasizing this so much, I'll tell you. One of the most popular movements in theology at the present time is one that tells us that it doesn't believe in this literal historical rising of Jesus Christ in the body from the grave and says that that historic fact as such doesn't matter at all, but does emphasize that there is some kind of principle of resurrection at work and that Christ can somehow help us. Now, I'm going to try to show you that the entire argument of the Apostle in this sixth chapter is derived from the facts. And if we don't accept the facts, there is no argument, there is no gospel, there is no message, there is no comfort for us whatsoever. In other words, we do not preach liberating ideas, we preach historical events and their meaning and their consequences. Now, the world always likes ideas. And it regards this uh, preaching of the resurrection as one of those marvelous liberating ideas. A sort of doctrine which comes to you and says that when everything has been dark and wintry, suddenly the light breaks and the sun shines and all is better. They say, hold on to that idea. We do not believe in liberating ideas. We believe in historic facts and events, in their meaning and in their consequences. So that, therefore, the great question we ask is this. What does this great historic fact of the resurrection mean to us? And again, I would emphasize that it does not just mean that Jesus Christ is alive and is still able to help us and to comfort us and to encourage us and to give us his aid. Now that, I say, is a most important statement. It does not only mean that. That isn't even its primary meaning. That, of course, is true. We believe with all our being that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive and is seated at the right hand of God. But that isn't the whole content of the resurrection. And if we simply say that or jump to that at once, well then, I say, we are bypassing the whole of the Sixth of Romans. That is true and gloriously true. But you know, there is something else, and I would say it with reverence. 
which is of infinitely greater importance to us because the gospel message is not just that we here struggling in this life can have the help from this risen Lord that we need. It takes us much beyond that. Now then, let's follow the apostle as he develops his argument. Let's see what he's got to say about the consequences of these historical facts which we've just been reminding ourselves of. And again, I would point out, as I did last Sunday morning, that the key to, his, to the understanding of his doctrine is this tremendous scriptural principle of the union of the believer with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how we neglect it. How we neglect it in thinking about the cross as well as of the resurrection. How we forget that the most important and significant result of the, of the, of the death and the cross and the resurrection for us is something that results from our union with him. Now that's the argument of this section of the epistle to the Romans, you remember. The apostle starts with it in chapter 5, and he continues it through this chapter 6. Here's his argument. He tells us that we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are related to him in exactly the same way as the whole of mankind was related to Adam. Everything that Adam did, we did. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam fell, we fell. All the consequences of sin that came to Adam have come to us. Very well, that's one side. Here's the other. Everything, therefore, that has happened to the Lord Jesus Christ has also happened to us. That's the first thing we deduce from his death upon the cross. We did that last week. We found that Paul says this that when Christ died upon the cross, we actually died with him. He was our representative. Not only that, we are bound to him. We were in him. When he died, we died. And we consider together certain consequences of that which are these. We find that the apostle tells us that we are dead unto sin. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? That was the first thing. We have been crucified with him. We have died with him. We've been buried with him. We've risen with him. Very well then. We are dead unto sin. He says also that we are freed from sin. Look at it in verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. He says it again in the 18th verse. Being then made free from sin, he became the servants of righteousness. We are... Uh, our old man is crucified, he tells us in the sixth verse, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That's a fact. And then we found that we were dead to the law, dead to the world, taken out of the dominion of Satan. Indeed, we went on to say this, that sin now is not in us as personalities, it's in what Paul calls our mortal body. It is in our flesh. It's a kind of relic and remnant that remains, this body of sin. This flesh. You remember those great statements in the 17th, in the 7th chapter, in verses 17 and 20. Now then, it, he says, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And again he repeats that. Now if I do that I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now those were the statements that we found. 
So that there we left the position like this. Here is the Christian. He himself is a new man. He is dead to all that. But he still has this sin in his members, sin in his body, sin in his mortal flesh and in his mortal body. The question is, how is he to deal with that? How is he to fight that? How is he to overcome that? That's the thing that causes so much depression. This sense of failure, this sense of defeat in living the Christian life and in battling against sin. Now the answer here still is our union with Christ. And now this morning we look at the other side of it. And the other side is this. The thing emphasized in these two verses that I'm taking as my text this morning. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. In other words, we teach, the apostle emphasizes here, that as in our union with him we have died with Christ, so we have taken part in his resurrection. Christ is risen, we are risen. That's the argument. Well, now then, let us see what he tells us about the consequences of that. Here they are. Let me just note them for you under headings. The first is that we are planted in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. Now, that's the fifth verse. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death... The authorized version reads, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Yes, but these terms shall be of misled people. And you see, the whole thing must be interpreted in that way. This is what we call a kind of logical sequence. It isn't a future in terms of time. It's an inevitable argument. Look here, says Paul, if you really are joined with Christ, if you're in union with Christ, and you are, it means then that you've been planted together in the likeness of his death, you have died with him. Well, also, you must inevitably also have risen with him, and you are alive with him. You are planted in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, now if he doesn't mean that, I say the apostle has no argument at all. It doesn't help a man of necessity to live in the present to be told that eventually he's going to rise. That is a value and that is true. But this is something of immediate practical importance. It isn't a future with respect to time. It's the completion of an argument. Everything that has happened to Christ has happened to me. I've died with him. I've risen with him. I'm planted in the likeness of his death. I'm planted in the likeness of his resurrection also. So that this is, I think, one of the most glorious things that we can ever understand and ever grasp. As Christian people, we have risen with Christ to an entirely new life. We are new men. The old men and the old life have been left in the grave. We are now something that is entirely new. Oh, the apostles always saying it. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It is like a new creation. The old has been left entirely behind. This is a resurrection. We are planted together in the likeness of his resurrection. 
But let me show you how he puts that in different terms. He keeps on repeating it. Look at the way in which he puts it in verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So you see, the second thing he tells us is that we are alive from the dead. The change through which the Christian passes because of his union to Christ is no less than that. The old men that I was by inheritance from Adam, with all the consequences of the fall in me and true of me, have been left behind in the grave. I am no longer that man. I am a new man. I'm not the man I was by my natural birth, by inheritance from my mother. I was born in sin and shaped in it, which we all have been. I'm no longer that. That's dead with Christ. It's buried. It's left in the grave. What has come out? Something absolutely new. I'm a new man. That's the teaching. So you see, before you begin to think of the resurrection in terms only of the risen Lord being able to help me realize what's true about you, my friend, you have participated in this. Your old men has gone. You are alive from the dead. We are all by nature, says Paul to the Ephesians, the children of wrath. We were all dead in trespasses and sins. Every one of us. But if you're a Christian, you're no longer dead in trespasses and sins. You're alive from the dead. You as he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, by nature, we all belong to the realm of the dead. And our lives in this world until we become Christians are nothing but, living, but a kind of living death. We are not alive spiritually. We are outside the life of God. We are dead, and that's the realm to which we belong. We are uh, victims of death, and we belong to the territory and the realm of death. But that's no longer true. He's conquered death. He's come out the other side. So have we. Our union with him necessitates that. There's no argument about this, says the Apostle Paul. If you realize this union of yours with Christ, well then these things must be true. They are true. We are alive from the dead. We've passed through death. The Christian as a spiritual being will never die. It's impossible. We have passed from judgment into life. Now that's the second tremendous thing that the apostle here deduces. But let's go on to see it still more positively. In the eighth verse he puts it in this way. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Again, you notice the importance of this phrase, shall also live with him. Again, it's not a future of time, but it is the logical necessity, the logical result. If we be dead with him, we believe that we shall also, but the doctrine of the union means we are also. Because if that isn't true, do you see the position in which you're left? We are told that we have died with him. That's a fact. 
then if you interpret this shall also as a reference to what's going to happen to us after we die in the body and are risen in the resurrection, well, what happens to us in the meantime? Are we in a state of inanition? Which makes the thing at once ridiculous, doesn't it? No, no. The whole time we are in Christ, we are joined to him, and everything that has happened to him has happened to us. So, as we have died with him, we believe that we are also alive with him. Now, but what does this mean? Now, here again, we must be very careful as to how we interpret this. This isn't uh, primarily an experience. What does it mean to live with Christ? Well, it isn't merely an experience. It doesn't just mean having fellowship with him. It does mean that, but it means something again deeper than that. It means this. It means that he is our life. When he died, we died. When he lives, we live. We are with him, we are in him. He is our life. Now the apostle says that again in many places. Do you remember him writing a phrase like this? He says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. Christ is the life of the Christian. So that when he says here, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. He's simply saying in another way, Christ liveth in me. I have been crucified with Christ. There it is to the Galatians. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. That's what he's saying here. We shall also live with him. We are living with him. He puts it in writing to the Philippians in this way. To me to live, he says, is Christ. In other words, you see, this doctrine means that Christ is living in me. And he's motivating all my life, he is the energy of my life. He determines my conduct, he determines my everything. As his death was my death, so his life is my life. That's the argument. And you see why the apostle is arguing all this. Somebody asked the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Why, says Paul, that's impossible. Why is it impossible? Well, here's one of the reasons. Christ is my life. And while he's my life, I can't continue in sin. It's impossible. His life is in me. His resurrection life is in me. That's what Paul is saying. He puts it specifically in the 11th verse. Likewise, reckon yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God in Jesus Christ. So that we may translate it like this. As we died in company with him on the cross, so also we shall live in company with him, participating in the same life which he himself possesses. And it's nothing less than that. And that is what the resurrection really means to us. That because of this mystical union between the believer and his Lord, I, as a Christian man at this moment, am in Christ, risen, raised, seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. That is what's true of me as a personality. 
That old man I was is finished. The law can't touch me. There is no condemnation now to them that are in Christ Jesus. I'm exactly like the person described by Paul in the seventh chapter. The woman who is tied to her husband as long as he's alive, but when the husband dies, she's free. That's your relationship to the law, says Paul. The law of God cannot condemn me. I finished with law. I'm dead to the law. I'm dead to sin. I am this new man in Christ. Take it specifically as he puts it in writing to the Colossians in the third chapter and the third verse. You, he says, are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. That's it. You, that person that you came into this world as, are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. That's where you are. And in this world, while you're still left in it, what happens is that this sin is in your mortal body and is trying still to rule you. And that's what you must reject. And then these are the ways in which we do that, as I'm trying to show you. Let's go on to his next statement, therefore, which is in verse 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. In Jesus Christ. What a tremendous thing this is. We are alive unto God not through Jesus Christ as the authorized unfortunately puts it. We are alive unto God in Jesus Christ because of our union with him. I don't know of anything that is more wonderful and more glorious than this. You see before all this we are not alive unto God. We are dead to God. You remember how Paul describes the Ephesians in the second chapter? You were enemies and strangers, he says, from the commonwealth of Israel, without God in the world. That's what you were. You were without God. You were not in touch with God. You were dead. The life and the power of God had nothing to do with you. You were just a lifeless mass, as it were without God in the world. But that's no longer the case. In Christ, risen with him, we are alive unto God. What's it mean? What does this great statement mean? That we are alive unto God. Well, it doesn't merely mean that we are now aware of God in a new way. It doesn't mean to say that we are alive to him in the sense that we now can take an interest in these things and are concerned about these things. It means much more than that. Can't you see the argument, the parallel which he's drawing here? This used to be the truth about us. We used to be in that intimate relationship to sin. Sin mastered us, sin governed us, sin reigned over us, sin exercised its power in our lives. That was the position with all of us before we became Christians, before we became experimentally in Christ. Well now then, what's happened? This is what's happened. We are dead to sin. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. What does that mean? Well it means this, that I'm no longer under the power of sin. It isn't the power of sin that is in me and controlling me and guiding me now. I'm dead to sin. Yes, but the positive way of putting that is to say that I'm alive unto God. 
I used to be as it were alive unto sin. I'm dead to sin now and now I am alive unto God. So alive unto God you see means much more than having an awareness of God. It means this, that I'm under the power of God. Alive in that sense. That as sin used to rule over me and reign in me and control me and was the master power in my life, all that is now true of God. I wonder whether a simple illustration will help at this point. Take this word alive. Alive unto God. It means something like this. Do you see that electric cable? There is that wire. A perfectly good wire. Yes, but that wire is dead until it is linked to the generating power of the electricity. While the switch is off, that perfectly good wire is dead. Put on the switch and the wire becomes alive. And if you touch it, you'll have an electric shock. It's alive to the generating station. That's precisely what the apostle is saying here. You are dead unto sin, you're alive unto God in Christ. Because of the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, you are in the same relationship. God enters as power into your life. Now, he's always saying that, isn't he? Listen to him again in writing to the Philippians in that great statement. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you. The power of God is working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You're alive unto God. You're linked unto God. The whole power of God is working in you, coming through you. You're alive electrically, if you like, spiritually. That's the meaning of the phrase, alive unto God. How sad it is that we don't realize these truths concerning the resurrection, isn't it? Had you realized that the resurrection means all these things for you, my friend? That you've risen with Christ, you're alive from the dead. You're alive with Christ. He is your life. You're alive unto God. The power of God has come into you. And then, of course, he inevitably goes on to make this statement in the 14th verse. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, this is perhaps the most important statement of them all. This is a categorical statement. Sin shall not have dominion over you. He doesn't say sin must not have dominion over you. He shall not. What's he mean by that? He means this. Because of all the things I've been saying, it is absolutely certain that sin shall not have dominion over the man who is a Christian and who is truly in Christ. It shall not. It shall not because this power of God makes him alive, because Christ is in him as his life. It cannot, therefore. Now, we tend to reduce that, don't we? We say sin ought not to have dominion in you. Sin must not. It's much too weak. What the apostle said was, sin shall not have dominion over you. In other words, he is simply saying this, that the final perseverance of the saints is absolutely certain and assured. If you are in Christ, my friend, I say there is no power in hell, nor anywhere else in the whole cosmos, 
that can prevent you a standing perfect and entire before God. You are either in Christ or else you're not in Christ. If you're joined to Christ, you're joined to Christ. And let me say this, this is once and forever. Listen to verses 9 and 10. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Why does he say all that? There's only one reason for saying all that, and that is to bring out the absolute certainty of all these things. Christ, he says, has died once and once only. He'll never die again. He cannot die again. He's done it once and for all. It's finished with. And you are in him, so it's finished as far as you are concerned. It's as definite as that. Our, set, our future is absolutely certain. It's absolutely guaranteed. Because Christ is my life, because I'm alive unto God, because of this power of God that is working in me, I will inevitably arrive in heaven. And nothing can prevent it. Is that dangerous doctrine? Well, you see, it was because it sounded so dangerous that the Apostle writes the sixth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. He'd been saying things like this and people had said, well then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? They say, this is marvelous. It's so certain, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm bound to be saved. You see, it's because it sounded as if he was saying that, that he has to take up the argument. But there's not the slightest danger. A man who's alive unto God cannot continue in sin. So if you regard this as a doctrine that gives you an excuse to sin, it means one thing only, and that is that you've never been a Christian at all. You've got a little fear of hell in you, but you don't know what Christianity is. Because if you're a Christian, you want to be holy. And you thank God for a doctrine that tells you that you're certainly going to be made perfect. And that nothing can stop it. But listen to the great apostle. Let you, let's go on, if you like, to the 8th of Romans, and at the end, this is what he says, I am persuaded, which means that I am certain, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Can you think of anything more certain and absolute than that? If you and I are in Christ, nothing can separate us. Nothing. He has died once, once and for all, never to be repeated. That's the argument of verses 9 and 10. And it's true of us as it's true of him, because the whole point of the chapter is to emphasize that what is true of him is true of us. So that, my friends, this is absolutely certain. We can never go back into the power of sin again. We can never go back into the power of death again. We've finished with it as he has finished with it. Nothing can stop this purpose. Sin shall not have dominion over you. It can't happen. It won't happen. God won't allow it to happen. If this is his great process, 
And once it starts, it's certain and assured. You can't be in Christ one day and out of Christ the next. My dear friends, let's get rid of this false notion of abiding in Christ. This is something that's happened. God has put us in Christ and has put Christ in us. It's an indissoluble union. We have died with him. We have risen with him. We are seated in him in the heavenly places. And therefore sin shall not have dominion over you. I myself am already outside its realm completely. I am dead. And my life is hid with Christ in God. But sin still troubles you, you say. Yes, it does. In my mortal body. Here is his argument, isn't it? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. He doesn't say, let not sin therefore reign in you. He can't say that. He'd be contradicting himself. He says, sin shall not reign over you. So it would be ridiculous to say, let not sin reign over you. He doesn't say that. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. I'm outside the realm of sin, but sin is still here in my members, in my mortal body. He says this everywhere. There it is again in the third chapter of Colossians. You are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Mortify therefore your members that are on the earth. You are not on the earth. You are in heaven with Christ. Your members are still here. And that is where sin remains. And you must mortify that. And here it's the same thing here. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of righteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now there, my friends, is this great and mighty argument. We shall go on, God willing, a fortnight today to consider some of the practical outworking of all this. But this morning I was concerned simply that we should see what the resurrection of the Lord means to us. It is because he literally came out of the grave in the body in that first resurrection morning that all this is true of us. That's his argument. Read the sixth of Romans for yourselves again. And notice that his, all his arguments start with an if. If this has happened to him because of our union, it has happened to us. Start with your facts. Hold on to them. Realize you're involved and that it has happened to you. And that therefore you are a new creature. You're alive from the dead. You're a new man in a new world. Christ is your life. You are alive unto God. And don't you know something of what that means? That the power of God is in you. And haven't you an experience of feeling that sin is something alien to you? Something that's bothering you as it were in your mortal body and in your members. Not you. That's it. It's because you've risen with Christ. It's because he's in you and you are in him. It's because you're alive unto God. And so sin shall not have dominion over you. You, your life, is hid with Christ in God. What a thing to say. What a thing to realize. 
that I at this moment am in Christ with God. But that's where I am. And I say that nothing on earth or in hell or in the skies or in the future or in the past or any power can ever prevent my standing there. Even in the glorified body, it's the last thing I need is to have this body, this mortal body glorified. And I shall stand in my glorified body face to face with him. And it is as I believe this that I no longer am frightened by sin though I don't appreciate its power but I face it in a new way as a new man and realize its limits and realize what I must do about it and what God enables me to do about it. You, if you're a Christian, are dead already. That old man is gone, finished. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Praise God for the resurrection and for what it means to you. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.